Yeah, for those of you guys who are returning, welcome back. It's good to see you guys' faces, but it's also so fun to see so many new faces out there as well. New semesters are always so fun just to see yeah, the new people that come into our community, and so glad you guys uh, braved the cold weather to be here uh, all week, actually. Um, and as Jared and Elena were saying earlier, here at Crew, we really desire to be a place for people wherever they're at spiritually to come, to find a place that they can belong, to be able to connect, to meet, be able to meet other people, to explore their questions, and be able to learn more about the Bible. And it's for that reason that we're starting this new series that they mentioned, Questioning Christianity, which is a tongue twister for me. So try saying that 10 times fast. Um, but why we're doing this is whether you grew up in a Christian home, have grown up around the faith your whole life, or maybe this is your first Christian event that you've ever attended, each one of us has questions. Each one of us. We all um, have things that we question, we doubt, or we think about. And for some of you, these questions might be preventing you from exploring Christianity or uh, preventing you guys from having faith in God. They are barriers to belief. But for other of you, others of you guys, these questions might be causing some doubt in a faith that you already have and starting to make you question some of the things you already believe. So our hope with this series is that we can cover some of these questions and begin to give you guys some answers and some different perspectives on these topics. We're not going to hit everyone's questions, and even just in our short time each week on Thursdays, we're not going to be able to even answer these things fully. But our hope is that during our time together, this series will meet you where you're at in your faith and help you think through the next steps in exploring these questions. So tonight, we're going to be looking at the question, is the Bible trustworthy? For those of us who follow Jesus, the Bible serves as the foundation and source of all of our beliefs. It is through the Bible as God's divine word that he has revealed himself to us. It is also through the Bible that we come to know about ourselves, the world, and why we're here, our meaning and purpose in life, as well as how we can know God and grow in our relationship with him. And that's the reason why here at Crew we spend so much time talking about the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible. We have community groups. We can go and read the Bible with other people. It's because we really believe that the Bible is a source of truth, and it's the only way we can only place we can go to to learn more about God and how we can know that God. And Christianity is actually unique among all the major world religions in that Christianity's beliefs are founded and dependent on historical events. We hold that the Bible is not just a collection of theoretical religious ideologies like some other sacred texts are, but also present actual historical information about God's people and God's intervention into the world that can be verified or proven false. And of all the historical information presented in the Bible of utmost importance is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the foundational Jenga piece that if you were to remove it, the whole tower of faith comes crumbling down. In the four biological accounts of Jesus' life, which we call the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus make claims to be God, to do things that only a divine person could do, die on a cross, be buried, and ultimately be raised from the dead. Additionally, later on in the Bible, we read in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1.3, that he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So according to the Bible, Jesus is God incarnate, God made flesh, God with us. Everything we would want to learn about God, we can 
look at all of Scripture, but we can also look at the person and work of Jesus to find out. And the reason that the Bible gives for why Jesus came was to reconcile our relationship with God by dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead on the third day. So to be a Christian is to believe in, to trust, and to follow Christ, which is one of the the names the Bible gives to Jesus. So therefore, if the historical events found in the Bible did not happen, namely the life, death, and resurrection of a man named Jesus of Nazareth in the first century did not happen, then our faith falls apart. We have no savior and have believed in a lie. We are left only with our own human understanding of God, with all of its limitations and biases. However, if the accounts of the Bible and of what he said and did are true, then as C.S. Lewis famously put it, a man who was merely a man, but yet said the sort of things that Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. So the question as to whether or not the Bible is reliable or the Bible is trustworthy is incredibly important. It's an incredibly important question for each one of us here tonight to consider. However, before we begin, I want to mention that because the life of Jesus plays such a pivotal role in the Christian faith, we're going to be mostly looking at the reliability of the four gospel accounts. We're going to talk a little bit about the Old Testament and the New Testament writings, but mostly, most of our time tonight, we're just going to focus um, on the written accounts of Jesus' life. So tonight, as we consider this question, is the Bible trustworthy? We're going to look at what I believe are the four most compelling reasons that we can trust the Bible. But before we get, get into it, let me go ahead and pray for us. Heavenly Father, just so thankful for tonight and this opportunity to share uh, with my friends. Lord, I thank you so much for the Bible. that You've given us um, a book that we can learn about you, we can learn about ourselves, and learn about our purpose in life. We can learn how do we can get to know you. Lord, would you be with each one of these people here tonight? Lord, would you meet them where they're at? Would you give them ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that is open to what you have for them today? Lord, would you be with me? Allow me to speak clearly um, and concisely. And would all that we do tonight be glorifying to you? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the first reason we're going to be looking at of why we can trust the Bible is that the Bible includes eyewitness testimony. The Bible includes eyewitness testimony. So throughout the Bible, we have narrative accounts written by eyewitnesses. So people wrote about what they themselves saw, heard, and experienced, or relayed what people saw, heard, and experienced. And as it relates to the four writers of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we'll look at each of these. So for Matthew and John, they were two of Jesus' 12 disciples. So they were with Jesus throughout all of his ministry and teachings, and they were eyewitnesses to all that he said and did. So their accounts are eyewitness accounts. For Mark, it is believed that although he himself was probably not an eyewitness, although he could have been, he probably was not, but it's believed that he records Peter's eyewitness account, and Peter was one of the 12 disciples. So uh, So Mark is recording an eyewitness account. And then lastly for Luke, he was a Gentile traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. So he was not an eyewitness of Jesus. But yet this is what he says about why he wrote his account and how he came to, to write his account. 
We read this in the beginning of his gospel, Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that, have, that you have been taught. So despite not being an eyewitness, he says, hey, the eyewitnesses themselves passed this information to me, and I have carefully went back and investigated these things. Why? So I can present an orderly, accurate account to Theophilus so that Theophilus can know for sure that what he has heard about Jesus is true. So if, we're, if any of you are here and you're like, is the Bible true? Is the, are the four gospel accounts, or like the gospel accounts of Jesus true? Luke asked that same question, and he went and investigated it, and he found that it was true and wrote this account, which I think is a pretty legit process. So in addition to this, in addition to the, the fact that these uh, writers were either eyewitness accounts themselves or they're recording eyewitness accounts, um, Scholars frequently debate the dates of when the Gospels were written, but it has historically been believed that the Gospel accounts were written anywhere between 30 and 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, which allows for the fact that all, like many of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' teachings, his miracles, his life, his death, and his resurrection were still around when the Gospels were written, which makes them able to be either corroborated or contradicted. So if they're reading this and they're like, Jesus did not say that, he did not do that. It would be squashed right away. And one example of this is the resurrection, which is one of the, the, probably the miracles that everybody is most familiar with and the one that's probably the most unbelievable for most people. All four gospel accounts include an account of the resurrection in that close followers of Jesus had interactions with the resurrected Christ, um, yeah, on several different occasions. But if these four gospel accounts were the only accounts that we had of the resurrection, it could be easy for people to say, oh, no, like, those are probably just fabricated by his disciples because they're the only ones that saw him. But yet, we actually have the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 confirming that there are actually many more eyewitnesses beyond the 12 disciples. And what's important about this is it's believed that 1 Corinthians was written before any of the four gospel accounts. So before any of the accounts were saying that Jesus rose from the dead, here's Paul saying there are many eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Let's go ahead and look at that. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So what's pretty cool about that is, is Paul is saying, hey, if any of you guys that like he's writing to, any of you guys doubt the resurrection, there's more than 500 people you can go talk to. Some of them have died, but most of them are still alive. You can go ask them, hey, did you actually see this? Did you actually encounter Jesus after he died and was raised from the dead? That'd be a pretty foolish invitation if there was no such witnesses, right? So maybe up to this point, you're thinking, okay, maybe the gospel writers were really there and they're recording eyewitness accounts, but their accounts are biased because they're followers of Jesus. So they were already hooked on this, this teaching. What are the non-Christian sources say about Jesus? 
And what's cool is we have at least three non-Christian sources that confirm a lot of the key details about the life and ministry of Jesus, as well as some of the beliefs of the early church that is recorded in the New Testament, which allow us to have confidence of the accounts of the Bible as being accurate and believable. So the first, we'll look at each of these three. So the first is Cornelius Tacitus. Cornelius Tacitus. He was a Roman historian during the first century, and he's considered one of the most accurate historians of the ancient world. So pretty legit dude. And in one of his accounts, he verifies both that early Christians were brutally persecuted by the uh, Roman Emperor Nero, as well as that Jesus, the originator of the Christian faith, was crucified by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. And both of those facts are one, recorded in the gospel accounts, but also in the New Testament record, um, but also in the early records we have of the early church, that Christians were being persecuted, um, and obviously that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So he's uh, verifying things that we see in the Bible. So the second source we have is Flavius Josephus. Uh, I would not want that name, um, but maybe he adds a little flave to your life, you know, Flavius Josephus. Um, he's a first century Jewish historian, and he was actually super opposed to Christianity. He wrote, like, tons about how much he hated Christianity. Uh, so he's not, like, favorable of Christianity at all, but yet he writes this about Jesus. He says, Jesus was a wise man who did surprising feats, taught many, won over followers from among Jews and Greeks, was believed to be the Messiah, was accused by the Jewish leaders, was condemned to be crucified by Pilate, and was considered to be resurrected. And then the last source we have is a guy named Pliny the Younger. These guys have some really weird names. Pliny the Younger, he was a first century Roman official living in what is now modern day Turkey. And he writes about the early church uh, in his area of modern day Turkey. And he says that the, the Christians in his region met together early on Sunday mornings to sing hymns worshiping Jesus as God and to take communion. They sought to live out their Christian faith and morals, which line up with the same things we have in the New Testament for how we should live our lives, and that they were persecuted for their faith. Actually, his writing is actually asking, hey, how do we actually persecute them correctly? Um, which is pretty interesting. So all these things, all these sources from these non-Christians, they actually line up a lot with confirming things that we see in the gospel accounts. So from both the non-Christian and the Christian sources, there seems to be sufficient evidence the four gospel accounts, as well as the New Testament, accurately record events and beliefs that they or their sources were eyewitnesses to, which gives their accounts credibility. So that's reason number one, that they were recording eyewitness accounts. So then reason number two is the number and accuracy of manuscripts. The number and accuracy of manuscripts. The Bible is incomparable to any other ancient work in the number and accuracy of its manuscripts. And why this is important is I've met many students, and maybe some of you are here tonight, who would say that the Bible is not reliable because it has been translated, translated so many times that things have obviously been changed, added, left out. It's like a giant game of telephone. Actually, I was just meeting with a guy today that was, was telling me this. He's like, the Bible's on. It's like whatever you know, number revision, they're always changing it. There's no way to know that it's the original work. But what's really cool is actually how this Bible, the Bibles that you have at your tables, the Bibles you have in your phones, can't come to be is not a game of telephone. Bible translators actually go back to the manuscripts that we're going to look at in a second. They go back to the manuscripts, the original Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and they look at that and they translate it to English or translate it to Spanish or whatever language they're translating it into. And that's how we get our Bibles today, which actually 
shows that our Bibles today are extremely accurate as they relate to the manuscripts that we have. So let's take a look at some of these manuscripts, beginning with the Old Testament. In the 1940s, archaeologists found what is now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which contained Old Testament scripture that was a thousand years older than the manuscripts that they had before 1940. So one would naturally think, okay, if we have these manuscripts from a thousand years before and these ones that are a thousand years later, there's probably going to be discrepancies because people probably changed it. But surprisingly, they found that they agreed a staggering 99.5% of the time. And that 0.5% was just spelling and sentence structure. So pretty incredible. And from that, we can conclude that the Old Testament manuscripts are pretty reliable and accurate. But what about the gospel accounts and the New Testament writings, specifically things about Jesus? Today, there are more than 5,000 copies, partial or, or complete, of the New Testament and the Gospels, ranging from anywhere from 50 to 225 years after the originals, which pe people that are way smarter than me say can give us a 99% confidence that the contents of the original text match up to what we have. And for many of you guys that are maybe unfamiliar with manuscripts and ancient documents, you're probably hearing all these things, and you're like, this is like listening to my roommate talk about the laws of thermodynamics, right? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, let's compare these to some other ancient writings that everybody, for the most part, would say, these are historically accurate and reliable. Like, we have no doubt that these were written by who they were written by and that the contents in them are accurate. Let's see how those compare to the New Testament. If you guys want to go ahead and throw up some slides. So this first one is a little blurry, but basically this is showing you the New Testament in Greek, in the New Testament in all languages, the number of manuscripts compared to all, other, all these other ancient works that people say are super accurate. As you can see by the bar graphs, Bible blows them out of the water, right? So let's see the next one. Okay, so this one. This shows us, on the left, you have the author of various works. And, you know, you have Pliny, like we talked about. We have Tacitus, who we talked about. These different dudes, super, you know, everybody says, oh, they're super accurate, super great. We have the Homer's Iliad, which, you know, some people had awful teachers in high school made them read that stuff. Um, I did not, which is nice. And the very bottom, we have New Testament, right? So you have the, what date it's written, then you have the earliest copy. So if let's take Homer, written 900 BC, the earliest copy we have today is from 400 BC. So the gap between the writing and the copy is 500 years. We have 643 copies because it's a 95% accuracy. Everything before that, they don't even have a percent accuracy because there's such a little amount of copies, such a big time frame. But let's look at the Bible. It's written in the first century AD from 49 to 100 AD. Earliest copy is 130 AD. So the time gap, less than 100, 5,686 copies, 99.5%. So I don't know about you guys, but I think the charts like this are super helpful because it shows you, man, there are so many manuscripts in the New Testament. And they're written, like the copies we have are so close to the originals. That is astonishing that, of how accurate they could be. And this shows us, uh, or gives us great reason to believe or, or trust that the Bible is reliable, at least in the New Testament accounts, um, based on the manuscripts. So that's reason number two, the number and accuracy of the manuscripts. So the third reason that we can trust the Bible is that the, the writers had no motivation to lie. The writers had no motivation to lie. In his book, Cold Case Christianity, this guy named Jim Warner Wallace, who's an L.A. cold case homicide detective, describes how to establish a reliable witness. 
He says four critical areas are examined before trusting an eyewitness testimony. Was the witness present? Have they been accurate and honest in the past? Is there evidence for their additional evidence for their claim? Do they have motive to lie? And what type of motives maybe would people be, would, uh, be found with people? He says three motives cause detectives to distrust a person's tr trustworthiness. Lust, power, and greed. So as we've seen already tonight, the gospel writers passed the three of those four tests. The, they were present, they seemed to be reliable and honest, and there's additional evidence in those non-Christian sources. But what about the fourth one, motive? Wouldn't they have some motive to lie about what Jesus said and did if they're followers of Jesus, wanting to distort it? Well, if we look at the three top motives that this guy talks about, lust, power, or greed, none of those things really fit with what we see. Because nothing that the authors of the four Gospels wrote would have given them any power or benefit. If anything, it actually only brought them persecution. All but one of Jesus' disciples were actually killed for what they believed and what they taught other people through their word and through their like spoken word and written word, as well as many other early followers of Jesus. As Blaise Pascal, uh, as you guys probably know from math class, but he also was a Christian, he puts it this way, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. So if anything, the fear of persecution would actually probably be a tempting motive to not write the gospel accounts. Because if you write it, people are going to want to kill you. So the motive would actually be to not write it rather than to change what they wrote. Additionally, if they were seeking to make up or fabricate a story to either create a new religion or whatever, right, to gain power for themselves, there would be a lot of things about the gospel accounts that they would not include. And there's tons of different things. But let's just look at a few of these things that they include that would not have been included if you were just making up a story. One is that the gospel accounts are critical of the disciples. The disciples were the first leaders of the church. So if you guys are the, one of the first leaders of this new spiritual movement, and you're trying to gain credibility for your movement and trying to convince people that, you know, your teachings, all these different things that you just did are, are true and all these things, you would make yourself seem like a really trustworthy person. But instead, what we see in the gospel accounts is that the disciples totally did not believe Jesus a lot of the time. They were super, like, disbelieving or doubting. They were super ignorant about things and arrogant. And they, a lot of them just flat out rejected Jesus. Like, not great things that you would include if you were trying to, like, say, hey, guys, like, I'm a leader. Like, believe me. You're like, actually, I really suck. The only, re only reason why you would include that is if it's actually true. And they were humbled about that. And then same with the miracles. C.S. Lewis uses this phrase, chronological snobbery, defining this idea that many of us hold, that everyone who came before us was less intelligent, less skeptical, and far more accepting of supernatural, uh, supernatural or non-logical uh, like events than we are today. However, as we look through history, we see that's not actually true. People in biblical times were just as skeptical as those of you today. If anything, they actually might have been more skeptical if things that Jesus was, were, was doing contradicted their religious beliefs. So therefore, to include the vast number of miracles that the Bible does would do no benefit or uh, would not help the, the early leaders of the church at all unless it really happened and people could verify them because nobody would believe them. Similarly to this, the crucifixion of Jesus. 
So again, if you're creating this new spiritual movement and Jesus is your hero, he's, your lead, you know, he's the guy that you guys are like, we're following a Jesus. But yet your hero dies a shameful, public, painful, criminal death, that doesn't really help you, right? And Paul actually tells us that in this time, the two kind of major people groups were the Greeks and the, the Jews. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that the cross was foolishness to the Greeks because they were like, no, like, powers and triumph, like there's, you know, victory is what we go for, not death and defeat. And it was a stumbling block to Jews because Jews thought the Messiah was going to overtake Rome, overtake the oppressors, not die this kind of criminal death. So again, saying that, oh yeah, our leader died in this way would not have benefited you if you were trying to make something up. Similarly, the resurrection of Jesus in first century Judaism, which is the religion that Christianity was born out of, there was much disagreement over the belief, like about the belief of resurrection. Some people, the Sadducees and the people that kind of agreed with them, thought there's no resurrection. Once we die, it's just done. But there's other people that believe, okay, there is a resurrection, but it's a universal uh, future resurrection at the, end of the t- and at the end of the world when all things, the whole entire created, wor- created order would be redeemed. So no one believed or would have believed if you try to convince them in just one person being resurrected before the end of the world. So for the, disi- for the disciples to promote this belief that Jesus had in fact been raised from the dead would have been unbelievable and useless to their cause unless it really happened and there was all these eyewitnesses like we talked about earlier. Like no normal Jew would be like, oh yeah, like that just say that Jesus resurrected. Like that'll really get people be like, no, you guys are a bunch of idiots. And the last thing we'll look at, the last thing that was included that would not have been included is that women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Sadly, in the first century, women's testimony was not admissible in court and was not trusted. But all four gospel accounts say that women were the first ones to encounter the resurrected Jesus. So again, if you're fabricating a tale, you would take that part out or you just wouldn't include that at all, right? Because you would say, no, like if we say that, people are going to be like, whatever, dude, like you're just making it up. But all four of them include it. And some of the gospel accounts even include the disciples' disbelief in the women. They're like, hey, we saw Jesus. And they're like, ha, good joke. Like, see you later. So this shows us, like, they wouldn't have included this unless it was true. And they, you know, realized their folly later. So as we can see, the gospel writers had no motive to distort their testimony. The information they include would have done them no good if they were simply seeking to create a new religion gain power or status for themselves, or even trying to maybe stir up a political revolution. The simplest answer to why they wrote what they did, often at the cost of their own lives and the lives of those that would believe in what they wrote, was that they were telling the truth and their account is trustworthy. And that leads us to our last reason for why the Bible is trustworthy, and that is changed lives changed lives. The countless stories of changed lives as a result of people believing the Bible is true. So we're going to look at a couple different examples. The first we have the disciples. The Gospels state that when Jesus was arrested, all but one of the disciples scattered. They ran for their lives. And Peter, who was actually one of the, like, people say, like, kind of one of the closest disciples of Jesus, and who was the most confident in his uh, devotion to Jesus, actually rejected Jesus three times. But yet, you have these same disciples who once scattered and were in fear for their lives, you know, staying in locked rooms, hiding from people that they wouldn't get arrested and face the same fate as Jesus. After his resurrection, they're out there proclaiming 
their faith in Jesus and proclaiming the resurrection like they didn't care about anything in the world. And the forerunner of that was Peter, the same guy who had rejected Jesus three times. The only thing that would explain why this dramatic 180 happened in their lives is if they truly did experience an encounter with the resurrected Jesus and that these accounts are true. Next we have James, which is one of Jesus' brothers. We learn in the book of Acts that James actually ended up becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But what's interesting about that is that the gospel accounts say that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him and actually mocked him during his life in ministry. So James was not a believer during Jesus' ministry in life. But yet, after his death and resurrection, all of a sudden James is a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Like, how the heck could that have happened unless he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus? In the passage we looked at in, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is listing all those people that encountered Jesus, James is listed as one of those people. And speaking of Paul, he was known as the great persecutor of the early church. Christians everywhere were super afraid of Paul. He struck fear in their hearts. And Luke tells us of his conversion in Acts 9 and how the man whose mission was to crush Christianity ended up becoming one of the most prominent and influential evangelists and leaders throughout all of Christian history, leading many people to faith and writing actually much of the New Testament. Or how about the countless martyrs stretching from the early church to today? Men, women, and children whose belief in Jesus, the same Jesus recorded in the gospel accounts, got them killed, often in gruesome, horrific, painful ways. It's estimated that more than 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith since Christianity began. And these people were willing to endure such atrocities and surrender their lives because of their steadfast trust that the scriptures, that this book, was true. And earlier tonight, you guys heard a 180 story from Matthew. And every week, we get to hear 180 stories. We get to hear story after story about how God has changed people's lives. The same God who has been revealed in Scripture. Stories about how they found hope, peace, joy, forgiveness, confidence, and much more by believing in Jesus. The same Jesus who really lived, died, and was raised for their sins, according to the Bible. I know from my own life that it was my faith in the God of the Bible, the Jesus of the Gospels, that allowed me to finally realize that I could be fully forgiven and fully accepted by God, but not because of anything that I could ever do, but only because of what Jesus had done for me as recorded in the Gospel accounts. So many lives have been transformed through their faith in Jesus and their, faith, and their belief that the Bible and what the Bible says about him is true that it is Jesus alone who holds the words of eternal life. Jesus alone who is the only way to the Father. Jesus alone who is able to rescue us from our sin and bondage to sin and death and graciously offers us eternal life. These stories, these changed lives are a living testimony to the trustworthiness of the Bible. So my hope is that during our short time tonight, that you have seen that although there's no way to empirically prove whether the events of the Bible or the claims of Jesus are true, the simplest and most satisfying explanation that the Bible is indeed trustworthy. The authors recorded eyewitness testimony. There's an incredible amount of manuscript evidence. The writers had no motivation to lie. And the truths of the Bible transform lives. 
The Bible was written over 1,500 years by 40 authors, but it tells one story. And it's the story that God loved the world, and he came in the person of Jesus to rescue us from our sins and give us eternal life. Remember back to the C.S. Lewis quote I shared in the beginning, that if we can come to believe and trust that this, this book is reliable and trustworthy, and that what it says about Jesus is really true, we're left with two options. You can write him off as a lunatic or a liar, or you can fall down at his feet and worship him as Lord. So what will your choice be? What will you do with this information tonight? What is your next step of faith? For each of us here tonight, I, I would encourage you guys to, to do three things as your next step of faith. There's obviously lots of things you could do, but three things I'd encourage you all to do. One, read the Bible. I find it so uh, interesting that so many people that I, I've talked to on campus um, that have doubts about Christianity, doubts about what the Bible says and if the Bible's really trustworthy, have never read a word of it. And maybe for you, some of you guys, you've read a lot of it, but I still encourage you to grab a Bible. There's some on your tables. If you didn't get one at your table, ask around. We have lots of Bibles in crew. Grab a, grab a Bible. I suggest start reading in the Gospel of John. Encounter the life, the teaching, the work of Jesus. Maybe text a friend and ask them to read it with you so you have somebody to discuss and ask questions with. So the second thing is to join a community group. You'll hear a little bit about it earlier. You'll hear about it a little bit uh, after this as well. Um, but as we mentioned, Crew is, wants to be a place for you to connect, for you to ask questions, to explore. And community groups are a great place for you to do that, alongside other people. You're going to meet some great people, and every week you get to open up the Bible and discuss and explore what it says and, how, and what it means for our lives. But community groups are also a great place for you guys to engage with other people that maybe are asking the same questions. And you can ask them, hey, like, do you think the Bible's reliable? And like, why? Like, why do you trust the Bible? What do you think about this? And the third thing is just to continue exploring. Tonight was a lot of information, I'm sure, but it was still barely scratching the surface of this topic. There's so much more. So if you have more questions or doubts or curiosities about the Bible, keep exploring. Fan the flame of those things. So if you have your phone, we're going to put up a slide. I'd love for you guys to take a picture of these additional resources. Um, most of them are books. There's a video in the bottom. But, man, there's some great resources out there. Uh, and I would encourage you if you guys, like, some of those books are really, obviously the Bible is the top one because that's a great resource. Um, but, yeah, I mean, some of these are really short, like 100 pages. Some of them are, like, a ton of pages. Um, they're all different kind of different topics and stuff. These are some great resources, uh, some of the, most of which I've read or have been recommended to me. Uh, but these are great places to start. But if you uh, are anything like me, reading a book like this by yourself is really hard. But reading it with other people who will, one, hold you accountable to actually reading it, but also discussing these things makes all the difference in the world. So it really helps you really grasp and wrestle with those things or see a different perspective on some of the stuff and really help it um, actually sink in and understand it. So maybe if one of these books interests you, ask some people to read it with you. Form a little book club. You know, you guys can eat some scones, drink some tea or coffee. Be great. Um, but for each of you guys here tonight, I just want you guys to consider what is your next step of faith. And with that, let me go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful, again, that you've given us the Bible and that you've not just called us to blind faith, just to believe it because you said so, but you've given us actually historical evidence that you've actually allowed Christianity to be rooted in historical things. Lord, we thank you that... Uh, we can trust you and we can trust what you've given us in the Bible. And I pray for each one of us here, Lord, that you would help, um, uh, help us pray the prayer of the man in Mark 9. I believe, but help my unbelief. 
Um, wherever each one of these people are at, Lord, would you meet them? Would you help them think through their next steps? Would you give them people to walk alongside them? And would each of us grow in our trust uh, in your word? I pray this all in your son's name. Amen.